Good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning, good morning. How many are happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Can you say amen? amen. The Lord is good. I'm so thankful to God right now. Number one, to be back with you. Uh, number two, to be extremely well rested. Number three, to have greater clarity than I've ever had before regarding what God wants to do in and through this house and where he wants us to go. And so we are already pursuing a new vision and a new direction, even though you don't know it. Because as we've been talking about what it means to put the kingdom of God first over the last couple of weeks, we've been setting ourselves up for our 2020 vision. And I shared with you last Sunday from the San Francisco campus that our 2020 vision is gate of heaven. And the word the Lord spoke to me is that we've learned how to be the house of God, and now it's time to learn how to be the gate of heaven. And this is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Two Sundays ago, we started this Kingdom First series and discussed what it means to be a Kingdom First Christian. And we discovered that to be a Kingdom First Christian, to be a Kingdom First individual, means to prioritize the government and Kingdom of God above our personal aspirations, ambitions, and values. Last Sunday, we talked about what it means to be a Kingdom First community. And what we discovered is that to be a Kingdom First community means to prioritize the Kingdom and government of God above all that we might feel is in the best interest of our community. And whenever we talk about Kingdom First anything, this morning my wife is on the other side of the bay preaching on what it means to be a Kingdom First family. Next Sunday she's going to preach that same sermon here, and I'm going to preach today's sermon in San Francisco so that both sides of the bay get to hear it. But every time we talk about Kingdom First anything, it lends itself to the anxiety that there's going to be neglect. We say, put the kingdom ahead of your family, and the first thing we think is, does that mean I have to neglect my family for the kingdom of God? We say, put the kingdom before our community. Does that mean we have to neglect our community? Put the kingdom before myself. Does that mean I have to neglect myself? And the fact of the matter is, kingdom first living is the best kind of living. You put your kingdom first because you love your family. And the best kind of family is a kingdom first family. We put the kingdom first because we love our community. And the best kind of community is a kingdom first community. And today we're going to talk about what it means to have a kingdom first culture. We put the kingdom first because we love our culture and the kingdom first culture is the best kind of culture. Now, I'd like to draw your attention to the book of Psalms chapter 24. You don't have to turn there. We're just looking at a few verses there that are fairly familiar to most of us. The psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Does anyone agree with that statement? Amen. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. The world and those who dwell therein. The world and all who dwell therein. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. The world and all who dwell therein. Everything belongs to God. Does anybody disagree with that statement? The world belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. This is a statement of the nature of the kingdom of God. 
The kingdom of God is the fact that God reigns over everything. However, that kingdom is vastly invisible because God does not appear to reign over everything. The kingdom of God is real, but yet not always evident. There is a sense in which it is not even manifest or actual. And we are moving toward a time in which every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, in which according to Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ, in which that kingdom becomes manifest and actual, but in the in-between, we have a choice to make. Are we going to surrender ourselves to the coming kingdom of our God? Or are we going to surrender ourselves to the manifest kingdom of this world? And there are multiple places in our lives in which there's tension between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our God. And at every place at which there's tension between those two, we have a choice whether we're going to become idolaters or worshipers. So the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness, everything in it, the NIV says. The world and all who dwell therein, for he founded it upon the seas, he established it upon the waters. And then the next verse says, but who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He starts with the principle, everything belongs to God, but then he brings it home and says, But who gets to go into his presence? Who gets to actually experience the presence and power of God? Who actually gets to stand in his holy place? And then he answers his own question. He who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. He who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. The principle is still true. Everything belongs to God and God is everywhere. However, the qualification is that if you're going to experience the life and power of God, you must first extract yourself from the web of idolatries that you have spun for yourself. This whole series, this whole kingdom series, is really about escaping idolatry. And the whole point of the series is that we become idolaters without even knowing it. We become inadvertent, accidental idolaters. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol-making factory. Every day we're making a new one, and we don't even know it. And the point is that at every place in which we prioritize anything above the kingdom of God, we just made ourselves a new idol. It could be chewing gum. It could be a radio station. It could be a car. It could be a person. It could be a substance. It could be a behavior. It could be an event. And all it takes is for that thing, that person, place, thing, or idea, whatever it is, to rub up against the value of the kingdom to a place at which you know that this is antithetical to the heart of God. But you do it anyway. And you make an excuse for it. 
or you accept it anyway, and you make an excuse for it, you've just become a willing idolater. Because you've exalted something, no matter how small it might be, above the kingdom of God. Now, Paul describes his ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 in these words. He says, The weapons of our warfare are not of this world, but they are mighty in God to the demolishing of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, taking into captivity every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ. This week, I have had more warfare over this message than over any message perhaps that I've ever preached before. There has been more opposition in the spirit over this message. Every day that I have sat down to even work on this message, I have had an onslaught of intimidation from the enemy saying, don't you dare say that. Don't you dare say that. And I realize that when it comes to culture, we are rubbing up against a web of idolatries that actually have been accepted by the church, absorbed into the culture of the church, and even sanctified and Christianized. When we're talking about culture, especially as it transpires in the United States of America, we are talking about the Christianization of idolatry. Christian idolatries. And there's been a temptation all week long to dumb this sermon down and to talk around these things but not talk at them. Not to mention these things. Why? Because the warfare is too intense. I've even been getting demonic threats of backlash. What I did to your first dog, I'll do to your second dog. Two weeks ago, my dog, one of my dogs got out and got run over by a car and killed. The day after we came back on September 1st, September 2nd, Happy got out and got run over by a car. We were devastated. And I, that, that thought even came to me during the week, and I know where that thought comes from. It's, it's the power of the enemy, and this is why. Because Paul made it clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he was talking about communion and the table of the Lord, and he was talking about meat sacrificed to idols, he said to the Corinthians that the real issue was not the chunk of wood or steel that represents the idol, but what is behind that chunk of wood. And he says this, he says to the Corinthian church, the sacrifices that pagans make to idols, they actually make to demons. Right. Meaning that every time you find an idol, behind that idol is a demon. Right. Meaning if you make chewing gum an idol, behind that chewing gum is a demon. Meaning that if we leave any form of idolatry intact in our mind or our heart, we're actually worshiping a demon. Yeah. Subtly. Yeah. Accidentally. Yeah. Tacitly. And it's a little thing, because you know, I haven't, I haven't cheated on my wife. It's not a big thing. Yeah. It's a little thing, you know? I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not killing anybody. But it's not a little thing. And if our number one passion and desire as a church is to facilitate the manifest presence of God, 
If we truly believe that there is no brokenness that cannot be mended in God's presence, if you want to know what our heart is and our desire, it's that everyone who comes into these doors would walk away saying, I met with God today. That's what we weep for and cry for all week long. That's what we pray for. When we say God truly among us, it's a vision, it's a passion, it's a desire. It's, it's not simply a slogan that we throw around. Oh yeah, God is truly among us. No, 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 no. You have to say that when you leave. We don't get to say that. God truly among us is something we hope you say when you leave because you met with God in a powerful way. But, but I began to realize this week that perhaps what's keeping us out of the presence of God is that we're lingering long in a place of idolatry. And that if we're not willing to confront those idolatries, we actually never find our way into the presence of God. And we never actually find the joy and the peace that we long for. Matthew chapter 6 which is the passage that this whole series is based on, Jesus says to his disciples in verse 31, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? And then he makes this distinction. For all these things the Gentiles are seeking. Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For all these things... The Gentiles are seeking, and your father knows that you have need of these things. You put those two statements together, all these things the Gentiles are seeking, and your father knows that you have need of these things. When he says all these things the Gentiles are seeking, he says, this is the way of the world. But when he says your father knows that you have need of these things, what he means is these things are not bad. Chewing gum is not evil. But... The way the Gentiles seek it, they make it their first priority. But you don't make it your first priority. You don't exalt it above the knowledge of God. Why? Because your father knows that you have need of these things. And then he says, but you, but you. I love that phrase, but you. Meaning you're going to live differently. You're going to think differently. You're going to act differently. You're going to do differently. But you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. The Gentiles. That word in the Greek is the word ethne, which comes from the Greek ethnos, which is where we get our term ethnic or ethnicity. It is translated variously, Gentiles or nations or peoples. When he says the ethne, the ethnic groups, the nations, the peoples, the cultures. And then he says, but you. Which means he just made a distinction between the nations, the cultures, the ethnic groups, the nationalities, the people groups, every cultural affiliation that has to do with this world. But then he says to his disciples, but you. He just separated them from the nations. And that's why when you get to the book of Revelation and you see these powerful scenes where there's this huge gathering of worship, of worshipers around the throne of God, it says it was a, a gathering of people out of every tongue and out of every tribe, out of every people, every kindred and every nation, out of. That is, they were called out of their cultures and into the kingdom. Does it mean culture's bad? No. 
It's just not first. It's submitted to the kingdom. Meaning that if you are Korean and a Christian, you are a Christian who happens to be Korean. Meaning if you are black and a Christian, you're a Christian who happens to be black. Meaning if you are American and a Christian, you are a Christian who happens to be American. But that the goal of our spiritual life is to come to such a place of intimacy with God in which we become strangers and aliens in the world and citizens in heaven. And the problem with with the, the people of God today is that we are citizens of the world but strangers in heaven. When the things of heaven start to break out among us, we say, ooh, that's weird and that's strange. Ooh, that's so strange and weird. If people start speaking in tongues, ooh, that's weird. If somebody starts prophesying, ooh, that's weird. If people get healed, ooh, I don't know if I believe that. Don't you realize that's heaven? That's your citizenship. That's your inheritance. You were born again into a new kingdom into a new culture, into a new citizenship. But then we look around and we see the degradation and, and the perversion in the world, and we're like, oh, yeah, that's just, you know, normal. <laughs> we do, yeah, you know, that's just, that's just how we do. You know, it's just how we do. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and at the heart of our cultural idolatry is not that we dislike our cultures, You're not supposed to dislike your culture. If you're Puerto Rican, you're supposed to celebrate that. It's awesome. Nigerian. That's the one thing I love about this church is it looks like heaven. I look around and I can't figure out if somebody asks, what's the predominant ethnic group? I don't don't know. (laughs) I don't even know. You know how to spell I don't even know? (laughs) A-O-E-N-O. Anyway, it's not that you're supposed to hate your ethnicity or your nationality or your culture or even your generation. It just can never be first. Kingdom first, not culture first. Culture first is idolatry. And let me tell you how prevalent that idolatry is in the United States of America. That idolatry is so prevalent in the United States of America that Sunday morning at 11 a.m. is still the most segregated hour of the week. And we don't realize that by putting our cultural affiliation ahead of our commitment to serve the kingdom, that we're actually engaging in corporate idolatry. That when we say, I want to find a church with more of my people, idolatry. No, the question is not, are my people there? The question is, where does God want me to be? What church has God called me to? Over the years, I hear, and you know, people love to send me notes and tell me why they left the church. (laughs) I've had people leave the church because there weren't enough young people there. 
and I remember there's one month I got a note from somebody, there's not enough young people in the church, so I'm leaving. Another person, there's not enough old people in the church, so I'm leaving. Another, there's not enough middle-aged people, you know. And I thought, they all can't be right. <laughs> somebody left the church because there were too many families. What? You know what I don't hear? God is calling me here. You know what? If God is calling you to another place, more power to you. It's about the kingdom. It's not about your membership here or there. I don't care what church you go to. The only church, I just want you to go to the church God wants you to go to. Kingdom and culture is a sticky topic. It's a stepping top. See, we, we talked about segregation on Sunday morning, and that's an easy one to say amen to. Yeah, that was too easy. I actually did that on purpose just to make you feel like you agree with the sermon. Because <laughs> you don't. In a predominantly Christian country, it's far too easy to get sucked into the culture first narrative without knowing it and actually even think we're serving God. There's this guy in the Bible by the name of Saul of Tarsus who had this experience. Saul was not just Hebrew, but he called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the quintessential Hebrew. He was the Hebrew of the year. (laughs) If there was a Hebrew Time magazine, it was called... Kairos, not just kidding. <laughs> Paul was on the cover. <laughs> now we know that he w- was converted to Christianity because he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and there's this, this misconception that his name changed from Saul to Paul. No, his name never changed from Saul to Paul. Saul was his Hebrew name, Shaul. Paul was his Greek name, Paulos. And throughout the book of Acts, whenever he comes to Jerusalem, they call him Brother Saul. Go read Acts 15. This is years after his conversion to Christ. Why are they still calling him Brother Saul? Because he's in a Hebrew setting. But when he goes out into the Gentile mission, they know him as Paulos, Paul. Why? Because that's his Greek name. What we don't realize is what actually changed for him on the road to Damascus. And what he was actually confronted with on the road to Damascus was that he had been living a culture-first life. And he thought it was safe because he was a part of God's culture. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, which means that he could demonstrate his lineage going all the way back to Benjamin and before Benjamin, his father Jacob, and before Jacob, Isaac, and before Isaac, Abraham, and before Abraham, he he could go all the way back to Adam. He knew who he was. He knew where he came from. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a child of the covenant. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was in the covenant. Not only that, according to law, a Pharisee. Do you know what Pharisaical Judaism was? First of all, do you know what Judaism was? when the Israelites came back from the captivity in Babylon in 539 B.C. 
or, or 516. The big question was, how do we make sure we never go into captivity again? And why did we go into captivity in the first place? And the answer to that question was, we broke the law. So let's make sure we never break the law again. And so these groups developed in this, what they call the intertestamental period between about 500 and the time of Christ. There was this 500 year period in which these groups developed that gave themselves over wholly to studying the law in its fullness, in its entirety, and seeing to it and teaching it to make sure that we never break it again. One of the groups was called the Pharisees. Another group was called the Sadducees. Another group was called the Essenes. And another group was called the Zealots. The Pharisees divided themselves up into their most highly esteemed teachers were called rabbis. And those rabbis began to gather disciples. Does this sound familiar? And the whole goal was not only to teach the law to the disciples, but to teach them how to live it in its entirety. Paul grew up in this system and studied at the feet of a very prominent rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. And Paul was his most famous and most successful disciple. And Paul said, according to the righteousness that comes from the law, I was blameless. Meaning, he said, I have no knowledge of any law that I ever broke. Which is crazy, more than any of us could say. Paul said, from the time I was born, I was raised to believe, love, and obey this thing. And to the best of my ability, my entire life, I lived that thing. So Paul thought, if anybody is living right, it's me. If anybody's not like the Gentiles, it's me. If anybody's not out there fornicating, it's me. If anybody is not out there stealing and lying and thieving and cheating and deceiving one another, it's me. Those are the Gentiles out there. I am obedient to God. And it's not just my religion. It's my culture. It's my country. It's my nationality. It's my ethnicity. This is the purest form of our culture, our country, our nationality, our ethnicity. We are God's chosen people, and, God, and we, we follow God in this way, in purity of heart. And then this group of people that called themselves at that time the way began to emerge. And they worshipped this strange Jewish guy named Jesus who had been nailed to a tree and crucified by the Romans. And Saul remembered that it was written in the law, cursed is anyone who is nailed to a tree. And they're saying that this dude who was nailed to a tree is our Messiah? This is blasphemy! And Saul said, we need to stamp this thing out and to stamp it out immediately. And so he went on a campaign of persecuting Christians and trying to destroy the church. And he's on the way to Damascus to continue his persecution campaign when the Lord Jesus himself appears to him on the road. And what does Jesus say? Here's what's crazy. Let me ask you a prior question. What language did Jesus say it in? In Acts 26, Paul, speaking to King Agrippa, says he spoke to him in the Hebrew language. The first thing Jesus does 
is affiliate himself with his culture. The first thing Jesus does is speak the Hebrew language to him. I know you, Saul. I know your language. I know your culture. I know where you come from. I know how you think. I know how you believe. When Jesus comes to you, the first thing he does is speak to you in your own language. The first thing he does, in a sense, is affirm your culture. Your culture's not evil in and of itself. God created you and your people. Your culture was something that God intended. It's a beautiful thing. But what does he say to him in the Hebrew language? Why do you persecute me? The gospel connects, and then it confronts. And what Saul of Tarsus realized there on the road to Damascus, in his confrontation with Jesus Christ himself, was that in his culture-first mentality, he had become an enemy of God without knowing it. In seeking to obey him, he began to oppose him. There are a lot of lines that can be drawn between the Judaism of the first century and the Christianity in America in the 21st century. And there are two forms of very pervasive idolatry that manifest themselves and even prance around in Christian garments in America. The first is the conservative idolatry. And the second is the liberal idolatry. And here's where this sermon gets dangerous. Because I've been told for years, Pastor, don't talk about politics. Not realizing that whenever you say such a thing, you are becoming a vessel of a demonic power that is trying to intimidate the servants of God. Don't you dare speak against this. Let me tell you how this idolatry on both sides functions in America. Each side says, we'll be Christian. We'll be Christian. We want to be Christian. We're going to accept your Christianity. We're going to champion your Christianity. We're going to pull you in and we're going to absorb you in and we're going to accept you. However, don't you dare confront us. Don't you dare confront us. We'll accept you as long as you don't call us out. And you can always tell when someone espouses one of those idolatries because anytime there's any mention of any evil on their side of the table, they refute, they fight, they defend. The evil is all on the other side of the table. Let me tell you something. The trap of the enemy is to pull you into either camp. I'm a conservative Christian. No, I'm a liberal Christian. I'm not saying you can't be conservative or liberal. I'm simply saying kingdom first. I'm a Christian first who happens to be a conservative, which means that at any place in which there is a tension or a conflict between my Christian faith, between the standard of the word of God and the conservative agenda, I go with the, with the word of God. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, that is, I'm willing even to break, break fellowship with my party on this issue. 
and say, you know, I'll go to this extent, but this thing right here, this is wicked. This is evil. And I'm sorry, but I'm a Christian first. You know, there's so many Christian conservatives, or actually conservative Christians in America, who are conservative first. And there's so many liberal Christians who are liberals first. Yes, I'm a Christian, but as long as we don't talk about these issues here. Because you know, I'm a Christian, but I still got this, you know, this stuff. Idolatry. You can be a conservative Christian, or a Christian who's a conservative, but you've got to stop and recognize the way in which the enemy has used conservative politics in America, and specifically the evangelical church in America, as a tool, historically. Do you realize that white supremacy in America has been championed by the evangelical church historically. Championed. And there was never an awakening and an uprising in the church where they woke up and said, oh my God, we've been the instrument of this demonic stronghold of white supremacy and we need to, we need to renounce this. Do you realize historically that in the historic fight for freedom in the African-American community, that it was the evangelical church aided by the conservative party that has historically fought against not only, and by the way, I know that the parties flipped after the Emancipation Proclamation. I know that it was the Republican Party that fought for freedom but it was also the Republican Party that fought against the Civil Rights Movement and has been working ever since to undo every civil rights piece of legislation since then. Am I against the Republican Party? Absolutely not. People hear that and say, oh, so you must be a Democrat. Absolutely not. The kingdom. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. It's kingdom first, not culture first. In order for us to have a kingdom first, and you know, a lot of times when we talk like this, people say, oh, you don't love America. <laughs> what? <laughs> you don't realize that protest is one of the greatest statements of love for your country that you can make. It's because you believe in your country that you protest. But there is a conservatism in America that cares less about justice than about calm. And so when there's protest, we take jabs at the protesters and the way they protest. You're not saying it right. You're not doing it right. It's too disruptive. Do you realize that at the time Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, he only had a 30% approval rating in the United States of America? Now everybody claims to love him. He's got a day and everything. And the reason everybody claims to love him is because we have truncated his impact to one speech. 
The only thing anybody knows about MLK today is that he stood for nonviolence and he gave that I have a dream speech. And I believe both of those things, so I love MLK. But you ha have you read any of his writings? Do you know what kind of a revolutionary he was? Do you know that when they asked him what do you, to, to, to speak out against rioters and the Watts riots in different places where, where African Americans were rioting, he simply said, I cannot speak out against rioters without speaking, about, without speaking out against the symptoms of injustice that have led them to riot at the, at, uh, foundationally, and that a riot is simply the language of the unheard, wow. yeah. Yeah. that he refused to speak out against rioters. I can feel the tension in this room right now. <laughs> you can cut it with a knife. I'm tempted to move on, but I, I can't move on because this point is so important. Listen to me. There's stuff we have to deal with that's part of our history and our legacy as evangelical Christians. And we are evangelical Christians, by the way. An evangelical is simply someone who believes that in order to get saved, you need to accept Jesus Christ into your own heart as Lord and Savior. That's the definition of an evangelical. But the word evangelical has come to be known as a political affiliation. Where politics has incorporated evangelicalism and evangelicalism has begun to raise up prophets that begin to sanctify certain political leaders and say, this is the person that God has anointed to reign and to lead over us and to, and to champion our cause. And, and now, we're, now, we're simply now we're simply sanctifying the state. And now we can no longer call out those political leaders for any unrighteousness in their own lives because God has divinely set them in their place. We don't realize that's idolatry. That it's not the job of the church to say this political leader is God's chosen person that God has raised up and to create this atmosphere that anyone who speaks anything about that political leader is speaking against God. That's wrong. And it's deception. Because this is the essence of any form of idolatry. Yeah, we'll accept you but don't speak out against us. We'll accept you, but don't critique us. Don't call out our unrighteousness. And then there's the liberal idolatry. Let me tell you how this form of idolatry works. We'll accept Jesus. We'll call on his name. We'll even have our own church services where we sing his songs. And we quote scriptures. And we say we love Jesus. But the only scriptures we will not quote are scriptures like, let him who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. I'll rap about Jesus in one verse, and in the next verse I'll tell you how many women I banged. And how many drugs I smoked. But don't call me out on that. Don't speak against that, because now you're just going off on pop culture. Now you're one of those legalists. And this form of idolatry knows certain scriptures very well. We don't realize that the devil knows the Bible backward and forward. He knows it better than any of us in this room. And he can quote scripture, chapter and verse. Do you realize that when Satan came to Jesus in the temptation, he quoted scripture at him? Just because somebody quotes scripture doesn't mean their heart is right with God. 
But there are some scriptures they know well, like, do not judge. Mm -mm. You can't judge me. God is my judge. Not realizing that the word judge, as used in the New Testament, has two different meanings. The word krino, which means to judge, means at its basis to distinguish between one thing and another. Kendra is wearing a black sweater. It is not white. That is a judgment. I've distinguished between one color and another color, and I've made a definitive observation about the color of her sweater. I judge that that sweater is not white. It's black. That kind of judgment we're supposed to do. That's the kind of judgment that was talked about when Jesus said, by their fruits, you will know them, meaning you will judge them. You will discern. You will know between one, you will distinguish between one thing and another. Where Paul says, if anyone's called a brother, but is an adulterer or a fornicator or an idolater, have nothing to do with him, Paul says, you distinguish between one thing and another. That is, if you're going to name the name of Christ, you've given me permission to hold you accountable to live a holy life. And to depart from iniquity. But the culture says, no, 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 no. Don't judge. Don't judge. Don't call it out. Keep your mouth shut. Be thankful at least that there's some celebrities that are using the name of Jesus. Be thankful that at least there's this Christianity that's happening in this celebrity culture. Just be thankful. As if Jesus needs a celebrity bone thrown his way. Sorry, but the kingdom of God does not need a celebrity bone thrown its way. And don't get me wrong, I'm not against celebrities. You can be a celebrity and a Christian all you want, and we want that. But let those who name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Don't judge. The liberal agenda... Actually, I don't even want to use the word agenda because it sounds so political, doesn't it? But in a sense, it's true. There's a liberal agenda, there's a conservative agenda, but there's a kingdom agenda. And the kingdom of God, the agenda of the kingdom of God, hear me carefully on this. The agenda of the kingdom of God is not to destroy abortion or homosexuality or to make sure that there's Republican presidents. It's the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God. And of us. The, the agenda of the kingdom of God is salvation to the world and God ruling over everything. But the liberal agenda is wrapped up in this idea of human freedom and the right of the individual to determine their own identity. Hard things, aren't they? So many people have asked me, Pastor, what do you think about abortion? What do you think about a woman's reproductive rights? Well, I need the Bible to inform that question for me. And the Bible says children are an inheritance from the Lord. It's about the sanctity of a human life. Why? Because my position on this issue is not formed by the culture, but by Scripture. 
And this is the key. When you come to Christ, all of us have ideas in our mind, stuff that we don't get, stuff that we don't understand, places at which the values that we brought to the table collide with the kingdom values that we receive in the Word of God and in Scripture. And the question is, are you going to submit to the value of Scripture? Or are you going to be conformed to the pattern of this age? People write me a lot and say, Pastor, what are your thoughts on homosexuality? Can I say to you today that my thoughts on homosexuality have nothing to do with anything? Who cares what my thoughts are? My thoughts didn't die for your sins. My thoughts can't redeem you. My perspective can't get you in or keep you out of the kingdom of God. The question is, what are God's thoughts on homosexuality? And can I tell you that the, that the Bible is extremely clear on this? That the jury is not still out? And can I tell you what God's thoughts are that are revealed to us clearly in Scripture? It's very simple. If you are here today and you have homosexual inclinations, first and foremost, I want you to know that God loves you. That you are not a special class of individual that God has determined your sin is worse than anybody else's sin. That Jesus died for you as much as he died for everybody else. And that you are welcome here as much as anyone else is welcome here. And you're just like everybody else too. You know why? Because we were all born sinners. You say, I was born that way. Yeah, we were all born sinners. I can't change myself. Of course, none of us can change ourselves. Heterosexual or homosexual, sin is sin. And Jesus died to redeem us from it. But the one place where you and I might disagree is that you might think that your sexual orientation has to do with your identity. And I think sexual orientation and identity have nothing to do with each other. I think if you want to know what your identity is, you've got to go to the one who made you and the one who created you. And your sexuality has nothing to do with your identity. Your identity is that you're a child of God. You were born to be and created to be a child of God. The question is, are you running to him or are you running away from him? Sin is defined as that which separates us from the love of God that we were born to be filled with. Do you realize that the reason God created you was so that he could love you in eternity? And sin is simply the means by which we run away from the love of God because we're clinging to something in our own lives that's so precious to us. And I know I can't let this go and I can't come to God because if I do, i got to let this thing go. That's idolatry. I I couldn't let it go if I tried. You know what? Me neither. Your sin, my sin, the same. We're both lost. Desperate. But coming to Christ is about coming to that place where I say, God, if you don't help me, I'm lost. Because I'm caught in this web of idolatries. And I don't know how to get out. If you're here today and you're a conservative, but you can't see the historic evil of the conservative movement with its American exceptionalism, 
It's rampant nationalism, which is the seedbed of every idolatry that is committed by any nation state in the history of the world. It was German nationalism that gave birth to Nazism in the Third Reich. That's where nationalism goes. Patriotism, fine with that. Nationalism, idolatry. And nationalism is the exaltation of one nation above all the other nations. My nation first. It assumes that our culture is Christian culture and it's idolatrous. And if you're here today and you espouse the liberal agenda, man, I'm, I'm going to empty the church out after today. What? <laughs> Ain't nobody coming back. Dang, you offended the liberals and the conservatives in the same sermon. <laughs> Me and the kingdom will be here next week. That's all I got to say. You know how to know if you're caught in the web of one of those idolatries? I'll make this real clear. It's going to be real simple. And then we're going to have an altar call. <laughs> if when I was talking about the conservatives, you said amen a bunch of times. <laughs> but when I was talking about the liberals, you got real quiet. <laughs> and vice versa. Yeah. You need to be at this altar at the end of this service. Because it's so easy to see the evil on the other side, isn't it? Because if you can see the evil on the other side but can't see the evil on your own side, you're on the wrong side. He's calling us out of. Not into a new political affiliation. On my Facebook page, under political views, I wrote, the king, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. <laughs> Listen, we've got to face the fact, people. If America was a person, that person would not be saved. If America was a person, that person would not be saved. That person would be on, her, on his or her way to hell right now. Mm. Kingdom first, not culture first. Does it burn? Good. <laughs> it's supposed to burn. It's supposed to burn. Because we can spend so much time trying to shield ourselves from the place where the rubber meets the road from the place at which the kingdom of God comes into conflict with the kingdom of this world. We are living in a time in which a new Nebuchadnezzar has built a new golden statue and has commanded the entire world to bow down at the sound of the music. And God is looking for the Shadrach, Meshachs, and Abednegoes who are going to stand and say, I'm not bowing down to this conservative idolatry. I'm not bowing down to this liberal idolatry. I'm going to stand. The only thing I bow down to is the name of Jesus. I'm not going to sell my soul to this agenda or that agenda. My soul has been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. This is the agenda. He said, then I heard voices in heaven. This is Revelation eleven fifteen. 15. 
And then I heard voices in heaven shouting, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. And this is the beauty of the message as, as uh, uh, where's my minstrel coming back to the keyboard? <laughs> I hate that word, minstrel. So ambiguous. <clears throat> the king is coming. He's going to right every wrong. The Pharisees truly believed in Paul's day that when the Messiah came, they would be the party that he would come through. They truly believed it. They believed with all of their hearts that the Messiah was going to be a Pharisee. And Jesus actually grew up a Pharisee. But what did he do? He called them hypocrites and a brood of vipers. Said, you tie huge burdens around men's necks, but you're not willing to lift one of them with your little finger. He called them whitewashed tombs. The Sadducees truly believed that the Messiah would come through them, but Jesus confronted them. <laughs> Remember, the Sadducees sent people to ask him. They said, Lord, there was a man who was married. He died. His brother married her. He died. His brother married her. He died. His brother. All seven brothers were married to the woman. In the resurrection, which wife will she be? Whose wife will she be since all seven of them had him? Why? Because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. That was a dad joke. Dad joke. And Jesus says to this political party, you err knowing neither the scriptures nor the power of God. In the kingdom of God, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're all like the angels. And then he says, but of the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And they were like, dang, you know what Jesus did? You know what he spent his time doing? Shutting down every political party. Shutting down every agenda, saying, I'm not of you, I am of you. I'm not of you, I'm not of you. The quest, remember Joshua, a little softer, Joshua. He goes to Jericho. And he's standing outside the city of Jericho, trying to figure out how are we going to get up in there. This is in Joshua chapter 5 in the NGT, the New Ghetto Translation. And he's looking at the walls of Jericho and trying to figure out how are we going to get in there. And all of a sudden, he sees before him a warrior standing with a drawn sword. It's an angel of the Lord. And Joshua says, are you for us or for our enemies? And the angel says, no. That's his response. No. No. You're not getting me on your political team. You're not co-opting me into your agenda. You are not absorbing me into your culture. No. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have come. And then Joshua says, what does the Lord command? And the angel says, take off your shoes, for the ground upon which you stand is holy. The victory came when Joshua recognized that the kingdom of heaven was not a resource that he drew from in order to fulfill his own will, but that I am the resource that the kingdom uses to fulfill God's will. Right. Anthony Simmons brought to my attention before the service today that when Jesus called his 12 disciples, first he calls this guy named Matthew, who was a tax collector, who was a representative of the Roman Empire. He was pro-Roman. And he says, come follow me. 
And then the next guy he calls us is a guy named Simon the Zealot. Remember I said there were four parties, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots. Do you know what the Zealots were? The Zealots were the ones who wanted to kill all the Romans. They were like the assassins. They were like the, they were the, they were the extremists. So Jesus calls an extreme pro-Roman and an extreme anti-Roman from two opposite parties. And he says to both of them, come and follow me. Can you imagine they must have wanted to kill each other? What made these two men, what gave them the ability to follow Jesus, coming from such extreme opposites, from such different parties, having such different values, having such competing worldviews, one naturally wanting to kill the other. Do you know what the difference was? Now they were following Jesus. Simon was no longer following the zealots. He's now following Jesus. And Matthew is no longer following the Romans. He's now following Jesus. And all of a sudden, when they begin to follow Jesus together, their political affiliations and their agendas become null and void. It doesn't matter anymore because we're both following Jesus. And I could just imagine Simon and Matthew having a talk one day and saying, you know what? I thought I knew what needed to happen in this nation. But maybe what I see is not the way. And maybe what you see is not the way. Let's just both follow Jesus together and let's see where he leads us. And do you know where he led them? He led them both to an upper room and he sat them at a table. He said, you don't know it, but at this table, you're going to lay down your values. You're going to lay down your agendas. You're going to lay down your hopes and dreams. You're going to lay down your way. I'm going to show you a new way. And he took the bread and he broke it. This is not your agenda. This is my body. This is not your political affiliation. This is my body. This is not your historic grievance. This is my body. Take it and eat all of it because it's broken for you. when they took that body and when they took that bread they let go of their way they let go of their affiliations they let go of their politics they let go of their hopes and dreams they said it's all about this it's all about this Jesus he is the way he is the truth. He is the life. And the Lord Jesus is in this place right now, and he is calling each and every one of us to that very table today. Even without the bread and the wine, the bread and the wine is here. Jesus is the bread and the wine. And how many times have we taken the bread of the, and the wine in a service like this while clinging to our agenda at the same time in our own hearts? not realizing that God's calling us to forsake our idolatries. Not realizing 
that by and large the church in America has been swept up into this intricate web of idolatries that exalt itself against the knowledge of God. But today the Lord Jesus stands before each and every one of us and says, are you going to take my body? Are you going to take my blood? Are you going to take my kingdom? Are you going to cling to your idolatries? The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. The question is, do you want to go up the hill of the Lord today? Do you want to stand in his holy place? Or do you want to cling to your idolatries? I don't know about you, but I'm ready to let mine go. I'm ready to let mine go. I'm ready to lay mine down. I'm ready to lay down every banner that I have waved before the feet of Jesus and say the only banner that I wave is the banner of the cross. Bow your heads. Holy Spirit, fall heavy in this place right now and purge us of our idolatries right now. Move upon every heart, every mind, every soul. Lord, our offense... If we're offended in our hearts in any way, our offense is a sign that the kingdom is just rubbed up against one of my idolatries. I pray that we would see that offense as a revelation of where I need to get set free. Holy Spirit, come and bring freedom right now. In Jesus' name, I pray that there would be resolve in every heart and there would be resolve in every mind. I'm going to get free. I'm going to learn how to live kingdom first. I'm going to forsake my agendas. I'm going to forsake my affiliations. I'm going to set the kingdom above everything. I'm going to follow Jesus. It's not about my culture. It's not about my people group. It's not about my background. It's not about my affiliation. It's not about my politics. And I don't know how it all works, but one thing I know is that Jesus is greater than all. I submit it all to Jesus, all to Jesus. I surrender all to him. I freely give. It all belongs to Jesus. And right now, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands because I believe this message spoke to every heart. I ask God today to take no captives, to take no hostages, to take no prisoners. But I ask for the death of the flesh in every heart, in every soul, in every mind. And you say, this message spoke to me and I'm ready to deal with my idolatry today. I'm ready to break it down today. I, I've seen some areas in my heart and mind where I need to submit my culture to the kingdom of God. I need to submit my affiliation, my agenda, whatever it is, my politics. It needs to be submitted to the kingdom of God. And I'm ready to do that work today. And I can't do it by my own power. I can't stop valuing what I value. I can't stop seeing what I see. I can't stop holding to the perspectives that I hold. I can't stop seeing what I see. But, but I trust Jesus and I'm, I'm ready to seek Jesus. And I'm ready to ask Jesus to help me. If that's you, I want you to stand up and come stand at this altar or kneel at this altar or fall at this altar, whatever you need to do. And I want you just to begin to seek the, the face of God and the presence of God. You can come now. You can come right now. The Spirit of God is in this place today. Don't wait. Don't say, I'm going to pray on it later. I'm going I'm to do it later. No, I'm going to seek Him today. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the unrighteous forsake his way. Let the sinful man his thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord who gives mercy and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He said, for my ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts and my ways than your ways. But he said, as the rain comes down from heaven and does not return until it replenishes the earth, providing seed for the sower and bread for food, so is my word that goes forth from my mouth. It does not return to me void, but it accomplishes what I send it to accomplish. Jesus' name. Go ahead. You can just begin to pray now. Jesus, Jesus. Lord, we cast down our, our idolatries. We cast down our idolatries. We cast down our idolatries. Lord, every way in which we have put ourselves, our agendas above your kingdom right now, we repent right now. We repent right now. We repent of our idolatries right now. We surrender our politics and our agendas to the kingdom of God. Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. Lord, today we submit our hearts to you. We submit our minds to you. We submit our lives to you.